Let's return in our Bibles, brothers and sisters, to Genesis chapter 2. Let me remind you while you're turning there what opens up to us in the second chapter of the Bible. The first chapter gave us the panorama of all that God made in the six days. The second chapter focuses on God's creation of Adam and Eve and his entering into relationship with them. So we began by seeing how God creates Adam to be a gardener and gives him the calling to make the world like the garden. Great calling indeed. That led us to meditate on uh, some things about this Garden of Eden. Why does Moses uh, pay so much attention to the location of it? We realized there's significance to that as he leads Israelites to that same part of the earth. And then, in turn, most recently, we recognize that this Garden of Eden becomes a theme of the whole Bible. Indeed, redemption is God restoring man to the garden in which God walks freely and talks uh, with his people. Well, those are big whole Bible themes. We are going to look at one verse as we return to chapter 2 this morning, a verse that describes God's special act of creation of the man we've come to call Adam. There's a lot in this one verse. I'm going to begin reading at verse 5, but it's verse 7 now that's before us this morning. This is the word of God. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land, and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we ask you for your blessing on every syllable of your word. We pray that it might be handled faithfully, that it might be received faithfully, and that it might enlarge our hearts in praise and love for our Creator and Redeemer. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Brothers and sisters, I want to point to the truths that are found in Genesis 2-7 by contrasting those truths with some very bad ideas that reign in our culture today. It is remarkable about how much of the bad ideas about humanity, human identity, the nature of man, can be refuted by one verse. I'm not that much into the fictional world of vampires, uh, but... I know it's a genre of literature and film. Actually, the closest I've been to that genre is back in the 70s when I watched Sesame Street and there was Count von Count. I'm sorry, kids, you may not remember. I don't know if that's even still on, but it was only much later that I realized that this was a puppet parody of Count Dracula. So that's the extent of my understanding of vampires, with this one exception. 
I know that the only way to kill a vampire, according to the genre, is to drive a wooden stake through his heart. Well, you know I'm edging towards an illustration here. I'm comparing some very bad ideas that plague our culture to vampires loose in the world, and I'll compare Genesis 2-7, unassuming as it may seem to you, as that wooden stake. Properly understood and properly put to use, it can single-handedly put to death some philosophical ideological vampires that plague the church. So I'm going to talk about three bad ideas, and if time permits, I'll add a fourth, but we'll see about that. Three bad ideas about the nature of man that Genesis 2-7 refutes, and then I'll close with a beautiful image that Genesis 2-7 gives to us as God's people about their creator. When I talk about three bad ideas in our culture, I'm not interested merely in leading us uh, to mock the folly of our society, to gloat in their error and our understanding the truth. I want us actually to be quite clear for ourselves, because I'm aware of the influence of ideas in our culture on the church. Everything I say, of course, presupposes a high view of Scripture that it's inspired and it's inerrant, and in that sense, one verse can do a great deal of harm to bad ideas. Number one, Genesis 2-7 refutes the claims of evolution about the origins of man, specifically the notion that man originally descended from primate ancestors. Now, a few weeks ago, I, I spoke about the fact that there are some differences among good men in our circles about some of the details of Genesis one and Genesis 2, for example, the length of the days has long been an in-house discussion among those who share a very high view of Scripture. But what about the central tenet of evolutionary science, that man evolved from pre-existing life forms? that what we call today the human race descended from primate ancestors. And those primate ancestors in turn themselves descended from other creatures of the earth. Well, brothers and sisters, the whole Bible uh, could be brought into this particular question, but I'm going to submit to you all you actually need is Genesis 2, 7. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Now that passage is giving us a description of a special act of divine creation. It involves God creating the first man, and you see Genesis 2-7 does not speak of him creating man from something that was already alive, quite clearly and emphatically, he creates man from that which has no life, that is to say, the dirt. Now, this is the emphasis through the verse, and you see it in, a, in several ways. First, there's a play on the words for man and ground. In Hebrew, the word for man is Adam, 
the word for ground is Adama. And so there's actually a play here, and you could translate it, and I think I've referenced this in the past, God made the earthling from the dust of the earth. That would be how the Hebrew is emphasizing the origin of man from the ground. Then there's the word for dust itself. It can mean loose dirt. That's why it's often translated dust. It can also be translated mud or clay. What potters work with in their pottery shops. That leads us to one other emphasis in the verse, and that's the word for formed in Genesis 2-7. It's also used in a passage like Isaiah 29, verse 16. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay that the thing made should say of its maker, he did not make me, or the thing formed, that's our Hebrew word, say of him who formed it, he has no understanding. So, brothers and sisters, you see in the verse itself, all together in a short space of time, all of the emphasis lies on God fashioning Adam from dirt, from dust. This is going to be repeated and emphasized in chapter 3, verse 19, when God himself references the way he made Adam as he brings his word of judgment. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. You are dust. And to dust you shall Return. You see, God in his word to Adam is referring back to what he did in Genesis 2, verse 7. He's saying, I took you out of the ground, Adam. Because of what you've done, I'm going to return you to the ground. He doesn't say it's from apes I have brought you, and to apes I will return you. It's to the ground. This, of course, becomes a whole theology in the Bible. It's going to become a major theme You and I are but dust. Psalm 90, you return man to dust and say return of children of man. Or a bit more, hopefully, Psalm 103. He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. Do you hear these allusions? They're going back to Genesis 2, verse 7. This reality that we are composed by God of the elements, the inanimate elements from our father Adam. You could, revert, you could think of those passages as interpretations and applications of Genesis 2, 7. And this is the point this morning. All this stands irreconcilably in conflict with the theory of evolutionary origins of man. Professor Murray, in a lengthy article where he works very painstakingly through the text, he comes to this conclusion in these words. In the one text which delineates for us the mode of God's action in making man, there is explicit contradiction of the evolutionary hypothesis. From this contradiction, there's no escape unless we do violence 
the elementary requirements of biblical interpretation. So I think that I have preached to the choir this morning this point. I've wanted very much to make as clear as possible why we as Bible-believing Christians say to the, that consensus with regard to the evolutionary origins of man, no thank you. Friends, it's not because we're anti-scientific, or it shouldn't be that. Everything we saw in Genesis 1 should make us great enthusiasts of the just work of discovery that science makes available to us. We believe that someone actually made all this stuff. So we are not against knowing all that we can of the natural world, but we should be marked as Christians who believe our Bibles by what I'll call a cheerful refusal to let the supposed consensus of science trump the clear teaching of Scripture. Have moments in the history of the church and have where scientific claims make us check our interpretation of the Bible. That's fair. That's fair. And we've done that. We've done that. Genesis 2-7. Plain as the nose on your face. God created Adam special and directly from the dust of the ground. And we recognize with Herman Bovink, theology needs to be on its guard against making premature concessions to the so-called scientific results, which can at any time be knocked down and exposed in their untenability by more thorough research. I don't know that I'll be returning to the subject of evolution as we move forward, but I wanted to make that one last point this morning. Genesis 2-7 refutes the claims of evolution about the origin of man. Number two, Genesis 2-7 refutes the claims of atheistic materialism. And by that I mean the notion that you and I are just so much chemicals in some kind of collection in our bodies. So kids, uh, this idea, this worldview of materialism, uh, it simply means that nothing actually exists unless it can be measured by scientific tools. Nothing exists but matter and energy. And so, of course, in materialism, there's no God. There's no spiritual realm at all. There's no angels. There's no demons. And concerning man, there's no such thing as the human soul. For the materialist, man is just a very exquisite animal. Your life is the same as the life of your pet. Your level of consciousness may be more sophisticated, but it is fundamentally the same as the level of consciousness of your puppy. You have no more of a soul than a salamander has a soul. And nowadays, materialists can appeal to that fascinating world of neuroscience. It seems like We're hearing every day of ways in which our thoughts 
and feelings and behavior relate to certain things that are happening in our brains. And so everything that traditional and religious folk have attributed to this immaterial element of us, a soul, is actually just the amazing operations of an amazing organ. The brain. We're able to connect our brain processes to moods and and instincts and all the rest. One of the men that the Lord used to found our denomination, J. Gresham Machen, confesses that he actually at one time wrestled with this view, this worldview. Felt the threat of it to his own faith. He realized materialism and atheism go hand in hand. He writes, Great hosts of unbelievers deny not only the existence of a personal God, but also the existence of a human soul. Indeed, the two denials are very closely related. It is a true saying which declares that if one does not believe that there is a soul in the little world of man's life, neither is he likely to believe that there is any God in the great world of the universe. Well, brothers and sisters, you know the whole Bible is set against materialism. But again, Genesis 2-7 is actually all you and I would need with regard to ourselves. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust in the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. Now, as miraculous as this moment is, it's being described. It's also quite clear what we're being told about Adam. Uh, So children, God first created the body of Adam. He created Adam's body from the dust of the ground, and he created it perfect. There was a moment at least when there was a physically flawless specimen of male humanity lying, we presume, but lifeless. And then God, the text tells us, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Something quite miraculous. But, of course, we know, all the things we may not know, God was imparting life to that body. We talk about resuscitating a body. What would be the word? Cessitating without the re? I don't know. I, don't know. I didn't look that up. God had other, made other living creatures, but he had not made them this way. They sprang up from the ground, the animals. But in this unique way, God's breath is entering the body of Adam. The old King James Translate the last part of the verse, and man became a living soul. Now, there's a reason why modern translations don't follow the King James there. It can obscure the fact that there is an expression that's being used here that's actually been used before and will be used again, and it's actually an expression used of both man and animals. Nefesh hayah, the living creature. That is something that can be said of animals, just like it can be said of Adam, And there is similarities between Adam's life and other living creatures. But Genesis 2-7, Adam receives something from God, directly from God, at his creation, animals do not receive. 
And the rest of the Bible makes it clear and gives us language for what Adam received as God breathed into him. He received an immortal soul. So part of who Adam is comes from the ground. Chemicals. Part of who Adam is comes from God. His spirit or soul. Man is the one creature of God's making that is both body and soul. The rest of the Bible makes all this exceedingly clear. Remember how Genesis later in the book speaks of death of Rachel, Jacob's wife. She's in childbirth. We're told in verse 18 of chapter 35, and as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Ben-Oni, Benjamin. You have this throughout the scriptures. It especially comes to the fore uh, when death is being spoken of because these two parts that God never intended to be separated in a certain sense in which we speak, these two parts are separated at death. Listen to Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 7. The dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. It's the same language of Genesis 2, verse 7. We talk about God giving the soul imparting that spirit from himself to Adam. Brothers and sisters, we're not talking about something that was a piece of God he imparted to Adam. We're not talking about uh, some element of God's divine spirit being given to Adam. That's not what we're talking about. The soul is just as much created as the body. But there's nothing like the creation of the soul. Nothing like it. In all the universe. All of creation comes from God in that broadest sense. The immortal soul does in a special way. God creates in this way in order to instruct, in order to edify. He wants you to know and never to forget there is something about who you are that transcends that which is material, physical. Children, do you have a soul as well as a body? Yes, and my soul is going to last forever. Children, how do you know your soul will last forever? Catechism answer. Because the Bible tells me so. Folks, These are elementary to Bible-believing Christians, but it is important to retain our conviction in an increasingly purely materialistic world that can increasingly treats all of our identity and all of our problems with our bodies and the brain. Listen to... uh, 
John Collins, he's helpful here, reflecting on how the soul in us is something that transcends our brains. When you think a true thought and follow a sound argument, your brain is active, but the results of that activity are not determined by the properties of the chemicals, but by something beyond or transcendent over those properties. When you make a sound moral judgment and choose to do it as right, you're not just expressing what's in your genes. Taking a share in something that transcends your bodily mechanisms. All this means that your brain activity is not the same as your thinking and choosing. It's the vehicle of your thinking and choosing. This is vital and important in all matters, all areas of the Christian life, from our friendships and our counseling to our parenting and to our pastoring. We are more than the sum of our material elements. Genesis 2-7 refutes the claims of atheistic materialism. Third bad idea. Genesis 2-7 refutes the Gnostic tendencies to depreciate the physical aspect of human nature. Familiar ground for most of us. This is specifically the notion that our bodies are the more regrettable aspects of our being human. And you've heard me say this in so many words before. Atheists have no place for the soul in their view of man, but many Christians have little sense of the true importance of the body to our human identity. And so this is manifested in thinking. Very common among Christians, our bodies are just temporary houses for our souls, and they're not very good ones at that. Our bodies are really more trouble than they're worth, and our future is to leave our bodies and begin heaven like the angels. So in popular terms, the real you is your soul, not your body. Don't we believe that as Christians? I mean, after all, it's our soul that's saved. We win souls, not bodies. It's the soul that's being nourished by the means of grace. It's your soul that goes to heaven when you die. And of course, there's truth enough in those things to give traction to this error. There's a primacy of the soul in identity. But the Bible's picture of what it means to be you cannot be seen to disregard the body in this way. So Genesis 2-7 is of such value to us in staying straight in this. We are not souls who have bodies. We're not bodies with souls living in them. We are, as human beings, a wonderful union of body and soul. Again, one that would have never been divided apart from sin. Uh, you know the screw tape letters. Screw tape is the demon uncle. He's writing to his nephew Wormwood. He speaks of the things of God, and you have to reverse everything he says because he's a demon. He writes Humans are amphibians, half spirit and half animal. The enemy, God, the enemy's determination to produce such a revolting hybrid was one of the things that determined our father, Satan, to withdraw his support from him. 
as spirits, they belong to the eternal world. But as animals, they inhabit time. You know, brothers and sisters, why we are so emphatic that the body is vital to who we are. It's because the Bible teaches us that our redemption isn't complete until our bodies are renewed. Yes, our souls are saved first, but our bodies will be saved also. Our souls are given life here and now. Our bodies will one day be given life. Our souls do leave our bodies and go to heaven when we die, but Christ will bring those souls back with him from heaven to be reunited with our bodies. Genesis 2-7 is enough to refute all by itself the notion that our bodies are important. As a matter of fact, the glory of being human is that there is both material and spiritual united. That's not intuitive to most Christians. Listen again to Uncle Herman, Herman Bobbing. In the teaching of Scripture, God and the world, spirit and matter, are not opposites. There's nothing despicable or sinful in matter. Visible world is as much a beautiful and lush revelation of God as the spiritual. As spirit, man is akin to the angels and soars to the invisible world. But he at the same time is a citizen of the visible world and connected with all physical creatures. So that leads Bavink to say man unites and reconciles within himself both heaven and earth. Things both invisible and visible as precisely as such he is the image and likeness of God. You're not comfortable with Bavink talking about man in general, uniting heaven and earth. Are you comfortable with theologians talking about the man, Christ Jesus, uniting heaven and earth? He only can do so by becoming a man. I've talked about a union of body and soul. Some have said, you know, the word tangle would be a better word. We're a tangle of body and soul. Why? Because it's really not that clear in everyday life where one leaves off and the other starts. This is why our children's souls are nourished by physical affection by their parents. Also why their souls are shaped as we administer physical discipline. Brothers and sisters, you're a tangle of body and soul. That's why your own weariness of body can make for dullness of spirit. Maybe even this morning. Or why injuries or age and its effect on the brain can lead to new patterns of sin. Why we're told by God's word that our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, not just our souls. And that we're united to Christ, both body 
and soul. Folks, it means a lot of what we might be inclined to chalk up to an all-due sensitivity of conscience to moral failing in ourselves. It's sometimes just creaturely limitations. Adam was created with the need for food and rest. When we don't have food and rest and the other things that sustain us physically, uh, we're trying to act like we're superhumans. We need to bear in mind that bodily limitations came before the limitations of sin and of fall. So Genesis 2-7 refutes all Gnostic tendencies to depreciate the physical aspect of human nature. Well, I'm going to pass over point number four. Uh, I touched on it before, or could be said, I'll just name it for you, like my pastor used to do when he was passing over a point for the sake of time. Genesis 2-7 refutes all the claims of transgender ideology, specifically the notion that a person's gender can be in opposition to his anatomy. We talked on this point when I preached from Genesis 1 on God creating man male and female, and I just would remind you that as God creates Adam, he starts with his body as he creates a man. Our bodies are not just related to our identity. They're the ground of our identity, according to Genesis 2-7. Well, brothers and sisters, we've looked at bad ideas and how Genesis 2-7 drives a stake through them, so to speak. I don't want to leave you just thinking about polemics, bad ideas, how to respond to them. Because in Genesis 2-7, there's something beautiful that we see about the Creator. When the time comes to make man, we see God going about it in a very different way. Let's not overlook that in all that Genesis 2-7 says about the errors of our day, what we're seeing in chapter 2, specifically as we come to verse 7, is that God is moving from creating the whole cosmos by His Word to fashioning man by touch and by breath. Think about it. Think about this. How did God create in chapter 1? We use the word fiat. He spoke and it came into being. He was showing off. He was putting on display his great power to stand from afar off and command the world into existence. Chapter 2 see something very different. He's not standing back anymore. 
He's taking soil in his hands, fashioning a leg. He's putting his mouth to Adam's nostrils and breathing life into him. Some of you are looking at me and thinking, wait a minute, the creator doesn't have hands. He doesn't have a mouth. For that matter, he doesn't have breath. Right? Indeed. So at this point, we have a choice to make. Language of Genesis 2-7, hands-on language, we've got a choice to make. We can conclude it's all poetic and figurative, and many have. You start down this road, contrary to the straightforward reading, you'll be left with no special creation of Adam at all. You'll not even be left with a literal Adam. You'll not certainly have Eve being made from his rib. And when you get to chapter 3, there's no serpent, there's no real fruit, there's no historical fall. And of course, the rest of the Bible won't let you do that. 1 Corinthians 15, the first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. Here's the direction we should go, brothers and sisters. Understanding this wonderful language of Genesis 2, 7. Follow me. God shaped Adam's body from dust, and he breathed into that body life from God in the same way that he would later walk in the garden and talk with Adam and Eve. We're left to deduce that God, in order to come near to man, would take physical form in order to physically fashion his masterpiece. Now that's something the rest of the Bible speaks so much of, we've already deduced. That's what's happening in Genesis 3 when God walks in the garden. Shouldn't we deduce? That's simply what's happening. Genesis 2, 7. And wait, there's more. If we ask which of the persons the Godhead would do this, I don't think it's hard to deduce. The Apostle John has already told us that in chapter 1, the Word of God was the eternal Son of God by whom heaven and earth was made. Surely it was the one we now call Jesus. Chapter 2, verse 7, who was fashioning a body, breathing into that body a soul. Matter of fact, as I think about what we're told in such succinct terms in Genesis 2-7. I can't help but think of Jesus in his healing ministry. I, I actually think we're supposed to. Remember he heals the two blind men? Jericho? Touches their eyes. To give them sight. He raises Jairus' daughter from the dead. Takes her by the hand. It says, child, arise. Matthew Henry makes my point better. Follow him. When our Lord Jesus breathed on his disciples, saying, 
receive you the Holy Ghost. Referring to the end of John's Gospel. He intimated that it was he who at first breathed into man's nostrils the breath of life. So brothers and sisters, think of it. This this would be the first physical appearance of God in the earth, and it's to make your father, Adam, what? Tender, loving care this puts on display. It's a beautiful picture. This transcendent God masterminding the whole creation of the cosmos, yet never being so imminent and intimate as when he enters in that garden. Physical form takes in his hands the creation of the one who would be his companion and breathes with his own mouth and into the breath of life. One commentator says, this act of God, breathing life into Adam, has the kind of intimacy of a kiss. You know where this will lead. God entering the world, some physical manifestation in order to create man. It will lead to God re-entering the world, bodily form, in order to remake the one fashioning the body of Adam would one day fashion a body for himself. To bridge this divide would come between man and God, made even greater by sin. This is the beautiful picture that ought to endear us to our Creator and our Redeemer. Genesis 2.7. Amen. Let's pray together. <coughs> so the question that has been asked before in wonder and awe is what is man that you are mindful of him? Lord, even when we consider the creature man that you made in the sixth day, apart from sin, we're still not sure entirely why it's so condescend, draws so near, takes such special care to make him. We are so thankful to know this about you. Explain so much about your relentless resolve to remake us, to restore us, indeed to make a way for invisible God to dwell with man forever and ever. Give you this praise and our thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.